It's always good to be here and to uh, be worshiping God together. We're glad uh, that we could all be here today. But you know, some sometimes some there's some concepts, some ideas, or some facts in life that are difficult to explain, and you can get caught up and you can get confused, and it can be uh, difficult, even as you try and explain something. Uh, in a, something that's difficult in a simple way, we can ha- we can have some problems. So I just want to illustrate that here with this short video. As you we listen to this guy try and explain the difference between torque and horsepower. So just have a listen. Torque is a twisting force traveling through the drivetrain provided by something such as an engine or a motor. Power is simply the torque at the location you're looking at, multiplied by the rotation rate at the location you're looking at. High power, low torque engines are light up because they don't need to deal with as much force from each combustion event, but they do need to deal with higher inertial forces. High torque, low power engines have to be much beefier because each component has to deal with a lot of force from a single combustion event. This gives them their lazier character, while high-powered engines like to rev more. Quoting a single number for power and torque doesn't really tell you much information, because you have to use a full curve to understand what's going on with the engine. This is why some engines feel like they perform better in real world than they do on paper. A more powerful engine will always be faster as long as you can have the correct gearing for it. But if you have two engines with the same power and one has a higher peak torque, that one must either rev lower or must have the torque peak occur lower in the rev range at which point they'll have more power across the rev range in total. And that is power and torque explained in a little bit under a minute. What would you like to explain? Leave a comment below. Anybody get any of that? <laughs> okay, Ken, yeah, I saw a couple of hands. Okay, the, for the rest of us, uh, that's a, a complex idea, a complex fact of torque and horsepower, trying to explain in a simple way and still failing. So sometimes we have these complicated, difficult concepts, ideas, or facts. And to try and help people understand them, we use analogies, we use figures of speech, we use something that we can relate to, something that we can identify with, something to help us understand that. It was interesting, I had a conversation with my brother-in-law, Ralph, recently. And he's involved in the cleaning, and uh, he works in the U.S., and he's involved in cleaning up uh, nuclear waste sites. And so I asked him, what, what does he do? And he, he took a few little things, uh, a few little plates and a couple of, uh, of uh, visual aids, and he explained very clearly uh, what he was doing. And you could understand what he was doing, even though it's very complicated, very technical sort of work that he's doing. You could understand it, because he was good at we would say dumbing it down in a way that we could uh, you could understand it. So that was uh, that was him uh, actually doing a good job of explaining uh, a difficult concept and a, a difficult idea. God wants us to understand Him and to understand our relationship that we have with Him. God doesn't want us to be confused or misunderstanding what. Uh, what it's like to be in relationship with Him. So He uses different things, different parables, uh, different analogies to help us understand some of these things that can be quite complicated. So He, at different times, Jesus 
uh, and the other authors in the Bible use analogies and they talk about things that we can understand to help us um, relate to some of the difficult concepts that he's trying to communicate to us. In Matthew chapter 9, um, he talks about, uh, Jesus talks about the, um, the, the healthy and the sick. He talks about uh, putting new wine in old wineskins and what, what the effect of that would be. And it helps us to understand because we can relate to that analogy that he's using. It helps us to understand what it is that he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 13, he talks about uh, the, the weeds and the wheat. Again, that's something we can understand. We, can, uh, we know about farming. We know what weeds and wheat look like. And so he's trying to explain so what might be a difficult concept to us, but he's using common terms. In Matthew chapter 25, he talks about the master and the servant. Again, using something that we can relate to to, under, to help us understand something about God, something about Him, something about the relationship we have with Him. The parallel or analogy that I want us to think about today is, in, that God uses to help us understand our relationship with Him is the idea that we are His children. And so I want us to think about that today, what it means for us to be God's child for us to be a child of God. Now, the one thing about that is it's not just a parable or an analogy that we're talking about here. So, when he says we are a child of God, it's not just uh, an analogy. It's not just a, something he's using to help us understand a more difficult concept. But there is something concrete about us being children of God. It's not just something he's using. It's not just a literary device that, that God is using to help us understand our relationship with him, but it is, in fact, true. We are children of God. So there is something about this that has some solid, concrete truth to it. As well as being a way of us understanding our relationship with God, there is something more that we can hang on to in the idea that we are God's children. And so God uses a term that we can understand because we've all grown up in some kind of family. We understand what it means to be a child. We all have been children at one time or another. And so we're all really all, we are still all children of our parents, whether we're grown adults or whether we're young, we are all children. And so we can understand that uh, concept that we are God's, also God's children. We have parents, we have siblings, we may have aunties and uncles. We know about family, and so God uses that to help us understand. So the first thing I want us to think about is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, because this idea of us being a child of God is something that runs through the New Testament and is picked up a number of times. So, I will, we're going to take a walk through some of these passages. But the first one here is in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. And he says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because 
You are His sons. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. And you see that uh, passage up on um, the screen behind me here. So we look at these verses and we consider what it means. What does this, what does this verse mean to us? He's saying he's got a lot of a lot. He's saying a lot in this passage here in Galatians four verses four to seven. He says, "But first, but when the set time had fully come, so this is not something that's happening by accident. This is a set time. This is a prescribed time where something is going to happen. It's not just a uh, it's not just a, a random event that's happening here. But when it had come, when the time had fully come." Then God did something. He sent His Son. This is God's initiative and God's activity. He sent His Son. It's not something that, uh, that happened just as a, as a random sort of event. It's not something that someone else outside of God was in control of and, and, and turned the switch and said, okay, now this is going to happen. But this is God Himself sending His Son. And it was, uh, the Son was born of a woman and born under the law. He was... The son who God sent was born to Mary and born in a Jewish family. He was part of God's people. And he had a purpose. His, this son had a purpose. This was to redeem, uh, to be adopted in, into a family. It says that we were uh, born, he, was, he came to redeem those under the law, to, to buy them back, to bring them back. And so he had a clear purpose, that redemption. And it was uh, to redeem those that are under the law that they could be adopted into a family. This is, uh, this is God's family that you're being adopted into. You're, so you're not coming into this in a natural sort of biological way, but there's an adoption, a coming into it later in life. And then that whole process develops. It gives us the Spirit, the Spirit who recognizes the God as the Father along with all of those who are adopted into the family. And He's not a slave. We're not slaves. But a son, a child with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go with the child. Including the inheritance that we have from God. There's a lot in these verses for us to grasp, to get a hold of, to understand our relationship with God. But the important part here for today is that we are children of God. I am a child of God. That's what God wants us to know. That we are His children. That we're not just any ordinary people. We are someone special. We are chosen by God. We have been adopted by God to be part of His family. And all that comes along with that is ours as we are children of God. But there's some questions that go along with that. As you stop and think about, well, what does it mean to be a child of God? The first question really, though, is how do I become a child of God? What's involved in that? Galatians chapter 4, that passage that we just read, Galatians 4, 4-7, is full of all kinds of interesting uh, concepts that we can explore 
And it tells us that we have been adopted into the family of God. We are the, a child of God now. But it doesn't clearly answer this question, how do I become that child of God? What happens? How do I, uh, how do I receive that sonship? How do I receive that, that uh, being a, becoming a member of God's family? And so we need to look in other places to help us answer that question. And the place to look is, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. And John, the, the writer of this book, uh, is describing Jesus. And he starts out his, uh, this chapter, he starts out the book describing who Jesus is, the, the Word becoming flesh. And then he gets down to, to verse 12 and he says, Yet to all who did receive Him, and he's, the Him there is Jesus, to all who did receive Jesus, He gave the, the, the right... Um, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So John answers that question, how do you become a child of God? And he, he, he gives a very simple answer to that. How do you become a child of God? To all those who received Him, to those who believed in His name, in Jesus' name, he gave the, the right to become a child of God. You have that, that right. As soon as you accept Christ as your Savior, as soon as you recognize Him as, as Lord in your life, He gives you the right to become a child of God. That's how we become a, a child of God, by accepting Him, by receiving Him as our Savior. Then we're born into the family of God, born of God. And this isn't, this isn't a, a, a physical, a biological birth, but a spiritual one, and it comes from God. So we receive Him. We believe in His name. It's not by physical birth, and it's not by uh, a human decision, but by the will of God. And when we look at a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, we see that it adds God's love to us, uh, to the understanding of how we become a child of God. This is a reason for bringing us into His family. It's a decision of God coming out of the love that He has for us. And so the question is, if this is how you become a child of God, the question then is, are you a child of God? Are you, in fact, a child of God? Have we made that decision and received and believed in Jesus? To become, so that we can become a child of God and have all the rights and responsibilities that go along with that. This is an important decision and we make important decisions all the time. Some of them are fairly obvious to us. Uh, as you're driving to church here this morning, do you stop at the red light or you just uh, blow through it and ignore it? That's an important decision that you have to make and it could change dramatically change your life and someone else's. We make those decisions all the time. Some of them are fairly easy. You do stop at the red light, of course. Everybody, not everybody, but most of the time everybody does that. Uh, some decisions are harder to make and are less obvious, uh, the answers uh, and the decisions that we have to make. Uh, do I stay in my current job? Do I leave? Is it, time, is it the right time for, for me to leave? Is which school should I go to? What program should I go into? These are important decisions as well, but somewhat more difficult to make. 
But here is a very important decision. Am I a child of God or am I not? There's no middle ground here. There's no indecision for us to, uh, to, to stand on and say, well, I'm not sure. Or maybe I'll decide later because by saying, well, I'm not going to decide now, I'm going to decide later, you are making a decision. And you're saying, I'm not a child of God. I'm not going to receive Jesus. And so this is an important decision. Am I a child of God or am I not? So this is where the discussion about being a child of God starts, is how do you become a child of God? But once we do that, once we've made that decision, then what does it mean then to be a child of God? What happens when you become a child of God? Now think of your human family. The children who are born into that family really don't have much to say about it. It just it, it happens to them. They're, they're in a way just someone, the, the, the children that come into that family are just ones who, who enter into it without any uh, discussion, without any making any decision about it. But think of, think of the parents in that human family. They care for the child. They provide food and housing for them, education, support. Encouragement, love, care, concern, all those sorts of things. The parent provides those for the child. But what's the child's responsibility in that? That's a, that's a question we need to explore. But as we, so, but as we, because as we think about it, even in our human families, as the children grow and develop, then they are given responsibilities. They have some things that, uh, some expectations. Uh, when when a newborn comes into the family, there's really no expectations of what they're going to do. The expectation of the parents is that they're going to have to look after them every minute of every day and care for their every need. But as they grow, uh, the expectations of the parents also grow along with the child. And so what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, we can, we, we can struggle with this question sometimes. Because... Partly because of our human families. Because none of us come from a perfect family. None of us had perfect parents and perfect siblings. Anybody who's grown up in a family will know that. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll be aware of, of maybe your own flaws, but you, the, 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 the failings of your parents as well. I'm not perfect as a parent. I know my parents weren't perfect in raising me. That's the reality of life. But we shouldn't let our imperfect parenting or the imperfect parenting our parents did, the imperfect families that we come from, uh, impact the fact that God is a perfect Father to us. And so as we think about what does it mean to be a child of God, we recognize too that God is our uh, perfect Father. And so what does it mean for us? How does this impact us? as we consider being a child of God. The first thing is that we are secure in God. That this is, uh, this is a fundamental truth as we consider the, the idea that we are children of God. We are secure in God. And what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 13 to 14 helps us understand that a little bit. It, the Bible says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So when you believed, and that's where he starts out describing what it means to be secure as a child of God. He says, when you believed, and so this happens at that point of believing, he gives a, a list of things that happened. You were marked in Him. Somehow you were marked by God when, at that point when you believed. God had put something on you to identify you. He says you were guaranteed. You were marked with Him with a seal, this promise, this Holy Spirit. You were given that Holy Spirit. And that's the mark that you have. When you believe, the Holy Spirit comes on you and lives in you and dwells in you and marks you as one of God's children. And he says that promised Holy Spirit is a deposit that's paid. That's guaranteeing. It says it's guaranteeing something. It's guaranteeing our inheritance. This is sure. This is guaranteed. It's guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's uh, possessions. So we belong to God. We will be with God. And this is a guarantee. There's no uncertainty here. We are secure in God. We can hang on to that truth that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what happens around us, no matter what's going on inside of us, no matter what we do, we are secure in God. He is holding on to us. He has guaranteed us. That Holy Spirit that's in us is a deposit guaranteeing what's going to come in the future. And that's our uh, full redemption and our full entering into a full relationship with God. In a way, we are marked, paid in full. There's no returns, no refunds. God can't take us back and say, here, I don't, I don't want this one anymore. You take it back. It's not like when you, it's it's not like when you buy a fridge and a stove and you and it doesn't work after a couple months you take it back and you get a new one it's not like that with God. It was a final sale. The deal was final. When we believed, we were sealed, we were marked. We have the Holy Spirit and that guarantees what's going to come. So we can rest in God. We can trust in him knowing that he will bring us to Him at just the right time. That should be a great encouragement to us that we can feel that, uh, that sense that we belong to God and we are secure in Him. This is an idea that's repeated uh, in the New Testament. It's one of those ones that keeps coming up and, and, and we, it, it keeps getting mentioned because it is of, of such importance. Jesus mentions this. Jesus um, gives us this in John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus is talking about He is the Good Shepherd. He's talking about His relationship with His sheep. And He says, Jesus uh, is, is describing this relationship. He says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in My Father's name testify about Me but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And he goes on to say, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. 
So now he's talking about the, his sheep. And he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of his hand. We are secure in God. He is holding on to us. We are his sheep. We are his flock. We are his people that he is caring for. He holds us in his hands, and he will never let us go. That's a word of encouragement to us, to his sheep. And also in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, Paul is talking about uh, the same idea. And he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on and he lists all these things. He says, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I, for Paul, am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a remarkable statement of the security we have because nothing will separate us from the love of God. We are secure in God. That should be something that really is an encouragement to us. That no matter what's happening around us, no matter what we're experiencing, we are secure in God. What goes along with that also is that we are loved by God unconditionally. We're often afraid that others will love us, with, but, but it comes along with conditions. That uh, this idea of being loved unconditionally might be uh, a bit uh, a bit hard for us to grasp, because somehow the love we know, uh, the love we experience, is is often conditional. If we behave in a certain way, then others will love us. If we behave in this other way, then people will stop loving us. This resonates with our experience. It resonates with our own feelings. We have the same sort of uh, feeling. We turn away from those who misbehave towards us. Those who give us a hard time. We turn away from them. We stop loving them. I had a friend in high school. His name was Alan. And he, uh, we were pretty good friends. And, and for whatever reason, I, I just decided, I don't know if I really decided, but I just started teasing him. And uh, we, we were really close friends. And I started teasing him. And uh, he was he was responding, so I kept teasing him. And this went on for a little while, for a few days. And finally, he got tired of it. And he said to me, he said, look, if you're going to keep this up, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And so you decide. Do you want to be my friend? If you do, stop this. Otherwise, don't talk to me ever again. And I was like, oh, okay. So I, I stopped. I, I valued his friendship. But, you know, he was feeling it. He was like, what, what's happened here? Like, like, if you do this to me, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's our, that's our human experience. But God's love is not like that. God's love is perfect. God's love is long-suffering. It's patient. God understands our weaknesses. God's not like us. He does not say, well, you know, if you do these things, I'm, not going, to love, I'm going to stop loving you. He loves us unconditionally. God simply loves us. He doesn't have a set of rules or regulations that we have to meet before He will love us. 
He doesn't have a set of rules and regulations that we that if we don't meet them, then He's going to stop loving us. He just keeps on loving us. John 3.16 is a very familiar uh, passage to us. And it's familiar because it's a, it's a simple one. It's straightforward. But it says, and I'm sure you all know this, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. And in that, He's talking about the people of the world. And God so loved the world that He sent His Son. It's very straightforward. It doesn't say that whoever believes in Him and gives a tithe, He will love. It doesn't say whoever believes in Him and serves as a Sunday school teacher or a youth group leader or whoever believes in Him and goes to the farthest corner of the world to serve Him, that He's going to love Him. It starts out, first of all, that God loved the, the world. God loved the people. That's, it, it starts with God so loved. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with what we do. But God so loved the people. And the Apostle Paul talks about this as well. And he gives us the same idea. He says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this for a minute. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does it mean to be a sinner? It means we've done something. <clears throat> it means we've moved away. We've, we've committed some offenses against God. And so while we were still sinning, while we were still doing the things that damaged our very relationship with God, God still loved us. That love didn't come as we believed in Him. That love was there as we were sinners. As our relationship with God was broken. As our relationship with God needed restoration, God still loved us. As we ignored God, as we turned away from Him, He still loved us. It's an amazing thought that His love was so great that despite whatever we had done, He loved us and He sent His Son as a sacrifice for us. Christ came and He died for us. He gave His only Son to come to live and die for us because God loved us. And that should be a, a great encouragement to us. That God loves us unconditionally. He's not waiting there, watching what we're doing, waiting for us to mess up so that He can stop loving us. He just keeps on loving us. And that should be a great encouragement to us. Now, what comes along with that, those are, those are the things that, the, the sort of the God side of this, but as we think about what does it mean to be a child of God, it means that we have a task from God. That God has given us something to do. And a couple of passages that talk about that is a great one from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah, or God's speaking to Jeremiah and He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. For Jeremiah, his response was, I can't do that. Like, uh, that's not me. Um, I'm still young. I can't do that. And yet, that was God's plan. That God had something for Jeremiah to do uh, even before he was born. 
if we if we bring that to us now in Jeremiah chapter one verse five, God is speaking specifically to Jeremiah, but it's not hard to take that and to understand that that this truth that God gave to Jeremiah also applies to all of us that God had some plan for us even before we were born. It's a bit frightening to think that we need to be trying to follow what God has done for us even before we were born, but that's part of the responsibilities of being a child of God. And sometimes it can be a bit frightening. And I think God God understands that. For me, I took one small step in February of 1990 and received Christ as my Savior. If at that point God had told me that I would have gone to Africa and served Him there for 17 years as a missionary and then come to Vancouver and be standing here at VCBC, I would have run. I would have done a Jonah and run in the other direction. But God was gracious and merciful to me. And He had a task for me. I believe that uh, that God had work for me to do. But He just took me and guided me one step, one small step uh, along the way. And as I followed him step by step, uh, he led, led me in amazing, uh, in amazing ways. But the reality is that God does have a plan for us. And our response to being God's child is to follow that plan that God has for us. We can also look back with our friend John. And in John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So here, Jesus is talking about what is our purpose. And he says he didn't choose, uh, they, they, the disciples didn't choose Jesus, but he chose them. And he chose them for a specific purpose. He appointed them. He gave them this responsibility to go and bear fruit. And I think this applies to us as well. God chose us, and He gave us a, uh, a purpose. He gave us a mission, and that mission is to go and bear fruit. Uh, our mission is not to sit on the couch and watch TV till our eyes pop out. Our, our mission is not just to, to hang out with our friends. Uh, our, our mission is not just to wonder, uh, to sit around wondering, what does God want me to do? Uh, that's, that's worth thinking about. What is it that God wants me to do? But... That's not the only thing you should be doing. He wants us to bear fruit. The idea here is an an agricultural one, right? A farmer, he prepares the soil, he plants the seeds, he fertilizes, he weeds the, the ground, he tends the plants, he waters the plants, all in the hope that they will bear fruit. And fruit that's of much high quality. That will be the the most benefit to the farmer. That's what he wants. And that's what Jesus is saying we should be doing for the Father as well. We should be bearing that kind of fruit. God has done the same with us. He chose us. He loved us. He's nurtured us. He's grown us. And now we need to bear much fruit. What is that fruit? Well, I can't, I can't tell you what fruit you are to bear. Each one of us uh, is, is as different as the plants uh, around us. So, just keeping on with that analogy, uh, that, that agricultural analogy, some of us will, uh, will, will, will be flowers like these ones here. Some of us might be roses or carnations. Some of us might be corn or apples or zucchini. Those are the kind of fruits that we're, that we're bearing. And we all need different conditions to flourish. 
just the way different plants need different uh, growing conditions, different kinds of fertilizers, different amounts of light and water, and are to bear their fruits. That's the same with us as well. And the fruit will all look very different. What do the plants produce? It, it can look very, very different. But they're all producing something. They're all bearing some kind of fruit. And the same is true for us. I can't tell you what fruit you should bear. Uh, I know I know the the fruit that God wants me to bear, and it's, it might be it might be different for you. It might be as different uh, as a rose is from an onion. The fruit different fruits that we want to bear. Um, and so we as a church we need to understand that and value that whatever uh, whatever fruits are being born here. Whether they're onions or roses, we need to value and appreciate that. But I think, to me, one of the things that really needs to happen is one of the, the, the basic fruit that we need to bear is to make disciples of Christ. What we do to accomplish that is where we'll see the difference. But each one of us has the task of making disciples of Christ. We're all very familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, teaching, doing all those things. But going and making disciples is the fruit that each Christian should bear. But how we do that can be very different. Some will go and give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Some of us will be out in the streets preaching to anyone who will stop and listen to them. Some uh, will even be preaching to those who don't want to listen at all and taking that and having that very different task, very difficult task. Some will want to go and reach the families just across the street from our building here. Some will want to go to the ends of the world to bear fruit there, wherever God might send you. And so there can be a whole range of ways we make disciples. But that needs to be our fundamental task, that we go and bear disciples. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that needs to be the fruit that we bear. So we have this complex relationship with God that's partly explained by simply saying, I am a child of God. That's easy to understand. It's something familiar to us. God is my unconditionally loving, securely holding Father who has given us, given me a task to do. This is something we can get our minds around, something we can understand, that God loves us unconditionally. We are secure in Him and He has a task for us to do. That's something we can get our minds around. But it all starts with that first step of, of believing in Jesus. Once we make that step, we need to look and think and consider what fruit that we need to bear. That's what God wants us to do. So as we come to the end of our service and the worship team comes, us, comes up, I just want us to, to take a moment and pray and consider what it is that God wants us to do. Let's pray. Lord, You have called us. You have chosen us. You have sealed us. You have put Your guarantee on us that we will be with You. And Lord, we thank You for the, uh, the, the, the security that we have in You. 
that knowing that we are loved unconditionally, knowing we are secure in You, that You will never leave us or forsake us, You will always be with us. And Lord, help us to respond by bearing fruit for Your kingdom. And Lord, speak to us. And help us, each one of us, to know the fruit we are to bear and how we are to bear it. And Lord, if that means doing something outside of our comfort zone, give us the courage. May Your Spirit empower us to do that. If it means leaving our families and going to a different place, Lord, give us the courage to do that. If it's speaking to our neighbors, Lord, give us the courage to do that as well. Lord, in all of this, help us to be making disciples. Help us to see the role You have for us in making disciples and by that, building Your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.